John and John chapter 11. Just a quick reminder. There's seven signs and there's seven I am statements. Those seven signs, we saw Jesus change the water into wine. We saw Jesus heal the royal official son. We saw the miracle of the lame man being healed. We saw the feeding of the 5,000. We saw Jesus walk on water. We saw him heal the blind man. And now we will witness the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Uh, Also, along with those, we have the seven I am statements. Jesus said, first of all, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. Fifth I am statement will be here in John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. The sixth will be, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the seventh will be that he is the true vine. Well, we ask the question, why were these things written the way they were? And thankfully, John gives us that answer in John chapter 20. He says, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John tells us in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, why he wrote what he wrote. Uh, He said he could have wrote many more. There were so many that the books could not contain them. But strategically placed before us in the gospel according to John are these seven that we have. And the purpose that they serve is to point me and you to the truth we all need to know. And that truth we all need to know is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing in Him you may have life in His name. That is the reason that we have the seven signs we have studied. And the seventh one we are making our way through. So we keep that in mind as we continue our journey in John chapter 11. Now last week, just to serve as a reminder, I'll give you a few headings that we will follow. The first one, we only looked at one last week. And we looked at the situation. The situation with verses 1 through 16. We saw the man who was sick. We saw the sisters who were concerned. We saw the purpose of that sickness. And we saw the disciples who were cautious. Today we're going to pick up with our second heading. So not only have we saw the situation, but today we want to see the sympathy. The sympathy. Now, I I struggled. I really did. I wrestled all week on how to put this together. Um, you know, part of me does not want to look at a few verses, skip the section, look at a few more verses and then go back to the section. But that's really the only way I could find to uh, to include it all in this one heading. So when we think about the sympathy of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we're grateful that we can have these times that we see our Lord exemplifying sympathy, but also compassion, patience, grace. But we're going to look at verses 17 to 22, and then we're going to look at verses 28 to 38. Now, I'm not going to skip 23 to 27. We're going to come back to them. But just looking at the sympathy that Jesus exemplified in this life, we need to look at these two together. So we saw the situation. Now let's see the sympathy. Verses 17 to 22. We see again that Jesus came in verse 17. He found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. Now let's stop here for just a moment. Why four days? Why would he specify 
that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. We, we must, that, that's got to stir our curiosity. And so we ask the question, why four days? Well, it's interesting that in the Jewish writings, a book that they would call the, the Mishnah, it simply says that the Jewish belief was the soul of the body who died would stay near the grave for three days, hoping to be able to return to the body. But on the fourth day, it would see the decomposition beginning and leave the body finally. Now, that was their cultural belief. That's what they thought, that when someone died for three days, the soul would be wanting to re-enter the body, but on the fourth day, see decomposition setting in and then leave. So you've got to keep that in mind when you think of the culture that Jesus has walked into and begins to preach and teach. So four days is specified for our benefit as the reader to understand what really is going on in this setting. When Jesus enters four days time, what is the people surrounding the grave thinking now? He's surely gone. Three days, they may still be a little hope, but four days, there's no hope. The soul has finally departed. So when they get here, notice verse uh, 20. Martha comes out, she says, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now, I don't want to belabor this too much, but I think there's so much for us to learn here. Verse 20, I find it to be unique. Don't we all respond differently in times of grief? We all respond differently in times of sorrow, in times of affliction, in times of heartache. Every one of us have our own mannerisms or things we do that would distinguish us from another. Now, we've already known that Mary and Martha were seen in Luke 10. Martha, what was she characterized as? The busybody, right? And, and Mary was doing what? Sitting. Boy, isn't that interesting we find them doing the same thing here? That Martha's the first one out the door when she hears Jesus coming, but Mary is doing what? Sitting. Martha's natural uh, mannerism that we gain in our knowledge of the word here is that she was active. We might would even use the terminology of busybody. <laughs> you know, somebody's just always got to be doing something. That seems to be who Martha was. Now, in her first account that we have with Jesus and she was doing busy work, that proved to kind of be a bad thing, didn't it? But now that she's a busybody, it kind of served in her favor because she was the first one to get to him, right? So sometimes our natural inclinations may be bad, but they also may serve us to be good in certain times. But Martha was the first one out. And she goes to her Lord. And by now, we all know that certainly a loved one as close as a brother that would die would be very hard for anyone. And then we see that in Martha. We see that in Mary. But notice verse 21. It says, Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You know, it's really, it, it hit me hard this week as I was studying to prepare for this morning and all. And you know, isn't it like us to have our first tendency to be that of complaining? That kind of hits hard, don't it? You know, we see someone whose loved one had passed. 
It was her brother. And the first thing she brings to the Lord is not a necessarily a demonstration of hope, but rather her hope and faith is mixed with somewhat of a complaint. Lord, if you'd have been here, this wouldn't happen. Now, before we all think we're greater than Martha or greater than Mary, and we think we by no means would have ever demonstrated such negativity toward our Lord, let us all be very careful. Because if we're not, we would, might would be the first to speak up in a complaint. that Maybe our prayers hadn't been answered soon enough. Maybe what we've been waiting patiently on the Lord for maybe hadn't come at the time that we deem appropriate. I think we see clearly in the life of Mary and Martha so many things, but one in particular that I would encourage all of us to be at war against is our nature to utter a complaint rather than hope or praise. Our natural inclination as human beings is to look to the bad first rather than the good. Don't we all have to fight that? Don't we all have to wage a spiritual war against that? To look to the, to, to the utter most difficult thing rather than praising God for some of the most simplest things. However, in the middle of her complaint, we also see that complaint mixed or, or intertwined with some faith, don't we? What does she say? Notice verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She had faith. She had a true faith. And just because we're people of faith don't mean that we might not utter a complaint, right? Just because we're people of faith don't mean that we're going to get it right all the time. But we see that her faith is present here. She knew that whatever Christ would ask from his father, he would give it. Even though her brother's sickness was very bad, she believed that Jesus could have cured it. Lord, if you'd have been here... My brother would not have died. So she's not diminishing the power of Jesus. She's not diminishing the person of Jesus. She's not necessarily putting down on Jesus in the sense of who he is. She says she knew that if he would have been there, that wouldn't have happened, which lets me know that Martha knows that Jesus is a compassionate, loving person. Because we know he loves Mary and Martha. We've done read that back in verse 5. So in Martha's mind, if he would have saw someone who was deathly ill or sick, his compassion would have been extended and Lazarus would have never died in the first place. I wonder how many of us really believe that our Lord loves us that way. Compassionate, kind. She knew he was. Why did she know he was? She'd read the book of Lamentations. Hopefully we're mindful of that. Lamentations chapter 3, the Bible says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, but His compassions fail not. They are new every morning, and great is His faithfulness. I don't know about you, but I feel like I need that preached to me every morning before I start the day. But you know, in the midst of our faith, Maybe you would agree, hopefully you would, that our faith is often weak. Our faith gets weary. Our faith, we would say, is fickle. It's sometimes holding on by a thread, so to speak. And the sad case in all of our lives, our faith that we truly have 
may sometimes be mixed with our doubts, may sometimes be threatened by our waywardness or our unbelief. The reality we see here in Martha's life is that her faith was true. She knew who Jesus was. She knew what He could have done. But her faith was weak. You know, anytime we find ourselves in the valley of affliction, our faith begins to be tested, doesn't it? Our faith begins to be tried. That faith begins to be maybe stretched. Sometimes we feel like it's getting close to the limit, right? And we're worried that it may break. But Martha here, her faith was true. But her faith was weak. However, she just did what? She left the issue with Jesus. What'd she say? She said in verse 22, but you know, even now, I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. Brothers and sisters, let me just put this in here for you. Whenever we don't know what to pray for, our greatest comfort is that our intercessor knows what to ask and he is always heard. I need to be reminded of that too. Whatever, you may be put in a place and you don't know what to ask for. You, you may not even, you know, you may be like, I, sometimes when I pray, I think, Lord, that was the sorest prayer I've ever uttered to heaven. I, maybe I need to start over, right? I didn't sound too biblical. You ever felt that way? I didn't get my thousand and these inserted in the right position. But brothers and sisters, when we don't know what to pray for, when we think we're too weak to pray, isn't it good and comforting to know we can just leave it all in the hands of the one who intercedes for us? Her faith was weak, but her Savior is strong. <laughs> your faith may be weak this morning, but I want to be the voice of reason for you and remind you that your Savior is strong. In times of weakness, she didn't say, Lord, you can do all things. Isn't that interesting? She didn't say, Jesus, I know you can do it, but I know you can pray to do it. That lets me know that even in these moments of afflictions or these valleys of darkness, we sometimes are challenged or tempted to forget who Jesus really is. Instead of just saying, Jesus, I know that you can do it. She said, I know you can ask and it be done. In these moments of our own weaknesses, aren't we so quick to forget who our Savior is? How often and how quick we forget that Christ is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. His dominion is an everlasting one and His kingdom is forever growing. Jump with me down to verse 28 as we look at Mary. When she had heard said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher's here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. The Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her when they saw Mary, uh, that she rose up quickly and went out. They followed her thinking she was going to the tomb to cry there. But Mary, when, therefore, when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord... And if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Boy, they have the same thought, don't they? The same thought. I think it's interesting to observe Mary's posture. You know, Martha tends to be the one that's standing up, you know, busybody. But Mary, you know, she was sitting at Jesus' feet, washing his feet with her hair, anointing him with oil, worshiping him. 
we begin and it says that Mary was sitting in the house and now she comes to Jesus and where does she find herself again? Back at his feet. You know, her posture seems to be something that John is picking up on. And even all the gospel writers, it's something about Mary. But if you know the history of Mary, then you know that why she, she viewed herself in such an humble estate. God had saved her from a morally corrupt life. She was at his feet. According, you know, this is an interesting setting. And I've wrestled with this too this week. But verse 33, it says, When Jesus therefore saw her crying and the Jews who came with her also crying, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. You know, according to the Jewish custom, and this is what I, you know, because a lot of commentators want to say that this, you know, this was Jesus being angered and this and that. And so, for me, the struggle is as to, you know, how do you, how do you put together Jesus' anger over people weeping versus him being compassionate over people weeping? How do you work this out? And the key to it is in the original word. But according, and it's also in the custom, which I find fascinating. According to Jewish custom, even the poorest family in that day was expected to hire at least two flute players and a professional wailing lady. Did you hear that? At a, someone who lost a loved one, even the poorest of family, was expected to hire two people to play the flute and one lady just to sit and scream and wail. Get paid for it. I find that extremely intriguing and interesting there. And Mary and Martha, they were a prominent family evidently, so most of them have noted that they probably more than likely would have even had more professional mourners at this funeral than your average family of their day. And the Bible says here in verse 33 that when Jesus saw that, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Now, that word there in Greek for deeply moved, do you know what that word means? And I had to snicker at this this week too. That word literally means to snort like a horse. Boy, that's interesting. <laughs> what kind of spiritual application are we going to get from snorting like a horse, right? When it says deeply moved, it means... The imagery of the Greek word there is for you and me to know that that word would have been used to imply a horse snorting in anger. And so John uses this word describing Jesus's reaction when it says he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. It's also used three other times in the New Testament. So when you're studying the Bible and you find a unique word, it's very helpful to see where else that word was used so you can understand how the writer was trying to relay the message. The other three instances on when this word was used is Matthew 9.30, Mark 1.43, and Mark 14.15, where they translated it sternly warned or scolding someone. So it does imply a type of anger. So Jesus here, in verse 33, saw her crying and the Jews who came with her also crying and he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. That deeply moved indicates that Jesus was somewhat agitated, angered. 
by the episode that was unfolding. And, you know, if, if the Jewish custom that we just learned about revealed itself in that situation, I think Jesus had every right to be upset. People were getting paid to mourn, to put on a show, basically. They weren't concerned about death had invaded the life of Mary and Martha. They were concerned that they were getting a check for wailing loudly and making a show. So Jesus, I think his anger, which would we would call, as I picked with my wife so many times, righteous indignation, would also be justified. Wouldn't you say that be so? We saw our Lord demonstrate righteous anger before as he flipped the tables over in the temple. And certainly those that did not see death to be something that was mournful, yet getting paid to mourn, I would say, would stir him. Well, we keep reading verse 34, and he said, and said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Well, here's all of our favorite memorized verse, right? Verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. If you want to ever pull a quick one on someone that, you know, you need a verse to memorize, there you go. Two words. Two words. Jesus wept. Now this word wept is another interesting word. We're told that this word is only used this one time in the whole New Testament. And it's being used to contrast the loud wailing that people are getting paid to do. So I'm going somewhere with this heading, his sympathy. When it says Jesus wept, this word is used to contrast or indicate that Jesus is not getting paid to weep over someone he loves. Jesus is not getting coerced into showing true sympathy for those who have experienced the death of a loved one. Jesus is not getting set up, in other words, to be bribed. He is exemplifying true care and compassion. His heart is troubled because someone he loved died and people he loved have been impacted by that death. Jesus wept. That word wept does not mean a loud crying or a loud wailing, but that word means that he silently burst into tears. It's the shortest verse, but it's got a big meaning. You know what this points out for you and me, brothers and sisters? This points out Jesus' humanity. That he was truly man and truly God. And as a man who had a best friend in Lazarus, his friend died and it brought him to tears. His friend died and it brought him to tears. You know, you've heard of, you know, certainly, well, men don't cry or grown men don't cry. You know, we've heard that. And, and rub some dirt in it, you'll be okay type thing. We get, I get that. But it lets me know here that Jesus was truly impacted by the death of his friend. And not only that, his heart was reaching out for Martha and Mary. Their brother had died. 
which confirms Isaiah 53, which the rabbis will never even read to this day, which says that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now the Jews, they were correct to see that Jesus indeed loved him. Watch verse 36. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him? But what were they wrong about? They were right to see that Jesus loved him. But what they were wrong about was that his tears reflected the same kind of faults, feeling, and sympathy they had. They were wrong to think that his tears reflected the same type of hopelessness that they had. You know, aren't we sometimes tempted to think God just don't care? Sometimes, and I know, you know, I, I hold to the sovereignty of God very dearly, but sometimes I find myself, which is wrong, I would say, fighting with that thought, you know, well, God has, God has forecasted this to come to pass. We can't let that bother us. You know, you got to stay above the flow, be emotionally distant from that, and everything's going to turn out for God's glory. You know, that's kind of how you look at it sometimes. But... Even the fact that Jesus knew what exactly was going to happen does not keep him from reacting in an emotional way at death and pain. Jesus knows he's going to raise Lazarus, but that does not make him cold or distant to the very event that he's going to impact. Jesus is not a heartless judge who is withdrawn from us and stands at a, a distance from us. No one in this setting knew better what was going to happen than Jesus himself. No one in this picture mourns better with those who are mourning than Jesus himself. Jesus loves people. He loves sinners. And so he wept with them. And he wept over them. Which brings me to our verse in Hebrews 4. Since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us take hold of our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace for and help in our time of need. Aren't you glad we see his sympathy? So not only do we see the situation and not only do we see his sympathy, but thirdly, we got to go back and look at his statement. So notice verse 23. We're going to go back in John 11, verse 23. We, we can't miss the statement. So we saw the situation. We see his sympathy. And now look at his statement. Verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise on the resurrection on the last day. Well, that's interesting. Someone that only read the Old Testament believes in the resurrection on the last day. Do what? We're not preaching new doctrines. <laughs> this is old, solid truth that has been around from the beginning. This is the heart of Christianity. That death does not have the final say. That is the heart of Christianity. 
In verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to her, I know he's going to rise again on the last day. Jesus said in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Well, this is big. I am. This is the heart of Christianity, brothers and sisters. Let me remind, can I, can I be a, a voice of encouragement this morning to you? Those of us who may have lost grandparents that we loved. Maybe you've lost a mom. Maybe you've lost a husband. Maybe you've lost a wife. Maybe, maybe you've lost a child. Maybe, maybe someone is connected to you very closely that you've lost. I, I want to say to you what Jesus said to her. Your loved one will rise again. Is that not the hope that we share with the world? This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he overcomes death. The grave does not have the final victory. This was not a new message. She knew that this was a reality. And on Wednesday nights, we've been looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, talking about the old covenant and the new covenant and how the, the old covenant was a old era of time. It was a old age of time. And now the new covenant has come, which means that a new era and a new creation has come. We are in a new time. We are in the kingdom of God. Those who have been transferred from darkness to light. So the eschatological hope that Israel longed for was being seen and realized in the very person of Jesus Christ. And I want you to see, I want you to be mindful of some of these verses. Isaiah 25 verse 8, He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people will be taken away from the earth for the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 26, 19, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. Daniel 12, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteous like the stars forever and ever. And one of the earliest written books in the book of Job, Job 19, for I know my Redeemer lives. And on the last day, He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see my God. What? This is old preaching and teaching from the Old Testament. They longed for that day. They looked forward to that day. Paul even told the church at Thessalonica, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Therefore, encourage one another with these Words. The long-awaited 
eschaton, if you wanted to get fancy with it, the long-awaited time that Israel was looking for, that they would be restored, brought back to life. we got to remember that Israel's restoration was always mostly referred to as a resurrection. That being said, let's remind ourselves of what John has already taught us. What does it mean for Jesus to say he is the resurrection? All right. The other I am statements are going to help us understand this one. Jesus called himself, I am the what? Bread of life. Why did he do that? It showed that Jesus is the fulfillment of the manna from heaven in the wilderness. So Jesus basically asserted himself to be what God's people would survive on in this new exodus. Secondly, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Jesus presented himself as the fulfillment of the pillar of fire and cloud that would lead God's people to the promised land. Jesus says, I am. In John chapter 8, which identifies him with the one who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. In keeping with all of that, Jesus called himself the good shepherd. Meaning that he fulfilled the prophesied new Moses and the new Davidic leader who would shepherd God's flock. And the long awaited last days or the end time or the hopeful uh, future that Israel looked forward to. Guess what Jesus now says? I'm that too. I am the resurrection. And the life. Hosea chapter 6 verse 2. He will make us alive after two days. And he'll raise us up on the third day. That we may live before him. Guess where that was fulfilled? Ezekiel 37. The valley of dry bones. So, oh son of man prophesy. I don't know if they can live. Speak over those bones. This was the long awaited time that Israel was waiting for. To be saved. To be Brought back together, all this type of stuff. And sometimes we people want to emphasize 1948 more than they do John chapter 11, but I'll leave that alone. But anyway, John chapter 11, Jesus says what? I am that. If anybody's going to bring you together and save you from the oppressor, it is me. It is me. It is Christ. Christ is that fulfillment. He is the promised resurrection from the dead. In Christ, the kingdom has begun. We saw that in the beginning of Matthew. The kingdom has been inaugurated. Jesus has been ascended and now is sitting upon the throne. All authority and rule has been given to Him on heaven and on earth. And you say, well, if the kingdom has been inaugurated, it still don't look too good. Well, it takes time for the kingdom to grow according to Matthew 13. You say, give me proof that that is true. <laughs> Jesus says, come forth. There's your sign. There's your sign.
the raising of Lazarus served as the demonstration that Jesus Christ is the life giver. Their future hope had become their present reality. So the last thing this morning, not only do we see the situation, not only do we see his sympathy, and not only do we see his statement, but we see the sign. So notice verse 39 to 44. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha and the sisters of the deceased said to him, Lord, by this time he smells, for he's been dead for days. I think King James says he stinketh. <laughs> I love reading all the different ways they word that. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. And I knew that you always heard me, hear me. But because of the crowd staying around, I said this, so that they may believe that you sent me. Does that confirm why John recorded these signs for us? Verse 43, and when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth. Now, y'all have heard me say this a ton of times, but this, is the, this would be the most fitting time. Spurgeon, he said, if Jesus would not have specified the name Lazarus, every tomb would have opened and everyone would have stood to attention. I find the Greek literal translation very unique. So if you didn't have an English translator translating the Greek and making it smooth for you in the translations we have, in other words, making it readable, it would read like this. Lazarus, here, outside. And he obeyed. I'm thankful that when I was dead in my sin, He called my name. And I'm thankful that His calling, His voice, has more power than the condition I was in. I'm thankful His call brings life. And not only is this true physically, but it's also a picture of the spiritual reality. As sinners, we are laying in a tomb, dead in our sin. And the only way out is the power of the call by the one who issues it. You could coerce Lazarus a million times with all the human um, pragmatic stuff you wanted. But he would have never stood to attention had the voice of Jesus called his name.
Go back with me to verse 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection of the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die ever. Do you believe this? So there's a question. Do you believe who Jesus Christ said he was? If you do, even if we die, yet shall we live. Death has no victory. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, this was a conversation about the kingdom of God becoming reality. How do we know the kingdom of God has come? And they said, because you see the demons being cast out, you see Jesus entering the strong man's house and taking of his goods. When did Jesus conquer the evil ones or Satan himself? Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and principalities of this evil age. How? By nailing our debt to a cross. Canceling it out. Paying it all. And so we sing the song with the utmost hope and joy of Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but Jesus washed it white as snow. All these signs were given so that you will know that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I I found it interesting that Martha said, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. Boy, that sounds often similar to another one I heard say that. Well, I didn't hear it. I read it. Peter said, Lord, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter... You're blessed. You figured that out all on your own. (laughs) Hey, you got to humor me just a little bit there. Peter said, you're blessed. Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. But my father who is in heaven. The greatest hope you and I have is that the one who is more powerful than all will open our eyes and our hearts to see the glories of Christ. And I pray that be true for you. Look to Jesus, for he is the resurrection and the life. Let's pray.